Good morning. It's so good to be with you. I want to extend again my welcome to you if you, you didn't hear it before. Of Just so great to have you here. If it's your first time, welcome. It's great to have you amongst us. What is going to happen next? I don't know if you have found yourself silently or perhaps not so silently asking that question over the last couple of months. I know we all know this, but I do think it is worth saying out loud, we have been living in and we continue to live in days of deep uncertainty as a people. These times that we live in are completely unpredictable in a way that none of us have ever experienced before. Just two years ago, every world leader in the whole, on the whole planet was lining up to, uh, to speak to their respective nations to say, there is a new virus about and we don't know what is going to happen next. And fundamentally, we as your leaders don't really know what to do. Now, of course, they didn't quite phrase it like that. They were far too proud for that. But that's essentially, that was the message. And now we are seeing a war unlike anything that we have seen in generations with an unpredictable, egocentric, nuclear-armed world leader. And the, the, the powers, the Western powers particularly, are unsure quite how to deal with him and what he might do if he's backed into a corner. And now we're seeing inflation rise and rise and rise in a way that we've all heard about inflation rising before and we've sort of known about it, but now it's actually impacting everybody in this room. And when you hear economists then interviewed about it, they're able to tell you what has happened and what is happening. Inflation, inflation has risen and it is rising. But then if you ask them, okay, well, when's it going to stop? They just sort of shrug. They don't really know. And there's something particularly disconcerting for us, this sense of, no one, none of the, no one that's in power, none of the intelligent specialists that we've got, none of the world experts in certain fields really knows what to do on a whole manner of issues and doesn't really, isn't able to tell us with any confidence what is around the corner. It feels like no one is really in control. But today we are going to see that the God that we have been worshipping the one who has all power to shake the heavens and the earth, the one who is able to topple kingdoms, wants us to hear his voice, to know he has everything that is going on in his hands. And today, as Jem said, we are in the final part of our Haggai series. And again, we are going to see how the people in, in this time, they hear the voice of God in their times of particular uncertainty and turmoil and they have no idea what's going on it feels like nobody's in control but God comes to them and he speaks and not only is he on the move but he is on the move to accomplish his plan and to fulfill faithfully all of the promises that he has made to his people so it might be different to what we expect but make no mistake God is on the move and he is leading us in the days of his sovereign, glorious kingdom reign. So today's message, if you like titles, is called Expect the Unexpected. And we are going to read from Haggai chapter 2, verse 20 and onwards. And uh, Haggai is at the end of the Old Testament. If you've been with us for the whole series and you still haven't found it, well, at least you tried. Um, but the words will appear on the screen behind me. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai. On the 24th day of the month, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the, the nations. 
and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And we read of God speaking for a second time now on the 24th day of the month. This is God speaking to his people twice in the same day. Now, this is significant because God's people, through their history, they go for years, even decades of time with the, the voice of God being completely silent to them. And now he is speaking twice in one day. In their time where they are experiencing uncertainty, turmoil, where they are standing on this building site of this temple that they've been building. And things are starting to come together and things are starting to take shape in that. But as they have returned from their exile in Babylon, coming into this whole new world order, a world that looks completely different to the one that they left, very uncertain, they have no idea what the next two, five, ten years and generations ahead are going to look like. As they find themselves in that place, we find God speaking and speaking again and speaking again. He wants his people to hear the sound of his voice. He wants them to know he is with them and he wants them to know exactly what it is that they are do- he is doing. In these times where we find ourselves thinking it is not particularly clear or obvious what God is doing amongst us, what he's doing in our nation, what he's doing in our world, what is it that we need? We need to hear the sound of God's voice. We need his word. He does not want us to be a people in distress or kind of running around in panic mode, unsure what is going on. In his voice, in his word, we as a people, we find comfort. I've been so encouraged. I've heard so many people just kind of casual conversation with, uh, with people in the church family saying, oh, for the first time this year, I have started reading the Bible in a year or the, the, the New Testament in a year. Just saying, I, I've just started kind of engaging with the Bible on my own in a whole new way. That is exactly what we should be doing in times like this, running to the word of God, saying, God, only in your voice, only in your truth will I find comfort. And the comfort he brings is in verse 21 where he says, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. And he said this before in verse 6, and now he's repeating it again. He wants them to know this really is going to happen. I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. I think it's hard for us to try and imagine a single statement that more fully encapsulates the almighty, all-powerful, all-encompassing, mighty, sovereign power of God in just one pithy sentence. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. What he's saying is, I am going to take the whole of the earth in my hands. I'm going to take all of the nations, all of the mountain ranges, all of the seas, all of the creatures, all of the islands, every single drop of magma that you might find in the earth's core, and every ounce of iron that you might be able to mine from it, and every breath of the wind blowing upon its surface, and I'm going to put it in my hand. I have got the whole world in my hands, God says. But where that song misses a little bit of a trick is that he then says, well, for good measure, 
I am not just going to have the world in my hands. I am also going to take the heavens in my hand. All of the rest of the created universe I will take in my hands. I will take the moon. I will take the stars. I will take all of those random bits of space junk that we've thrown up there that is now spinning around. I will take all of the distant galaxies that dwarf ours in size. I will take all of those huge planets of which you could fit 10,000 of our very own planet inside of. I will take all of the mega-dense black holes and all of the antimatter and all of the things that I have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about but he sure does, I'm going to put them in my hands. And then I'm going to take the whole of the unmaterial, immaterial realm, the spiritual realm, the the place in which God himself resides, which we can be pretty sure that's even bigger than anything we have observed, seen, or imagined. And he says, I'm going to put that in my hands. And then, like a snow globe, like a child's plaything, he's going to take that in his hands and just shake it up. That is what our God says. And that could sound to us terrifying. We think that sounds like even more disorder, even more disorientation for us. But it's comfort because he goes on and it's not just a display of his almighty power, but of his precision and his purpose. As we go through in verse 22, he says, to shake the heavens and the earth, and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. He is particular. He is specific. He knows exactly what is going to happen as he shakes up the heavens and the earth. This is a carefully orchestrated minutely planned, but all-encompassing, earth-spanning shaking of kingdoms, a complete reordering of the, the real world powers that they were facing and they were seeing that towered over them and intimidated them. Kingdoms like the Assyrian kingdom and the Persian kingdom, these kingdoms were absolutely terrifying. They were gargantuanly big, and they were vicious and vile and brutal in their reign. They were worse than anything in in terms of the way that they treated people than anything that we've seen over the last hundred years or so in our recent history in this world. So mighty and so powerful were these empires, so vast, that the only way that they could be explained by people were that the leaders and the rulers must be gods, or they must be godlike, and so they were worshipped and seen as such. There was nothing bigger or stronger in the imagination of the people of God at this point than these empires. These were the sorts of things that kept them up at night. These were the sources of their sense of we are vulnerable and we are anxious. And yet see how effortlessly God says, I'm going to bring them to their knees. Just one little shake, just a tiny little movement of God's hand. And they're done. They come to an end, crashing down. Truly nothing falls out of God's sovereign reach. Nothing is too far away for the reach of his arm. He can reach into the inner circle of the Kremlin and shake it up 
and bring to an end in a moment an evil invasion. He can reach into the Chinese Communist Party and in a moment he could bring liberation for thousands of Ouija Muslims that have been interned in camps and he could bring autonomy once again to Hong Kong. He can reach into 10 Downing Street, into a government that we know and have seen is self-serving and duplicitous and plagued with moral failure and he can shake it up and make it right. All of the things that are far too vast for us even to be able to think about, let alone be able to touch and, and change, just one little shake from God's hand. Nothing is too big. And nothing is too small for him. All through this letter to the, the people, God has been speaking his sovereignty right into their everyday lives. In verse 9 in chapter 1, we read of him saying, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. And then again, verse 11, he says, And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain and on the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. And then finally, verse 17 in chapter 2, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Each of those, it can sound a little bit like God is trying to take away and he's maybe giving them less. But as we've seen as we've gone through, what God is trying to do is trying to get their attention and you're trying to wake them up to himself. And in each of those times where God is acting in their life, what strikes you is the detail. Just taking that last one as an example, I have brought about mildew. This is a very specific plant-based disease. I have brought hail. One of the things that I was not prepared for when I moved to Manchester was the amount that it hails in this city. What is up with that? So much hail. And so I've become well acquainted, a bit of a hail expert from living in Manchester. And you think about how tiny a hailstone usually is. Depends on how special a day Manchester is having. But you think about how tiny they are, how many there are when it hails. Every single one of those, he's saying here, every single one was under his control. He individually appoints it when and where it is going to fall and for what purpose. Nothing is too far for his arm to reach and no situation is too small for him to be able to reach down into. He's not just the God of the nations. He's not just the one who can bring entire empires crashing down to their knees, but he is the God of the hailstones. He is the God of that job application that you're filling in. He's the God of that exam that you've got next Tuesday that you haven't yet started revising for. He's the God of that family drama that's starting to unfold. He's the God of that unpaid bill that you've got on your kitchen slide that you're just hoping maybe that will just vanish if I don't do anything about it. He's the God of that diagnosis that you're worried about. The God that reaches wide into the nations and reaches deep into our lives to act and work every minute of every day. And this was not just an abstract reality that these people had been living in. They have not only seen the God of the hailstones working in the minute detail of their lives, but they have been living and encountering for themselves the sovereign hand of God who conquers thrones. When they were taken into exile, about 90 or so years before this was written, they were thrown into a time of turmoil and questioning, what is God doing? What is next? How are we going to 
act? What do we need to do? And so they would have turned to the scriptures to work out, okay, what is going on? And as they hoped maybe God might liberate us, maybe he might act, they would have turned to, to, to the scriptures. And one of the books they would have gone to was the book of Isaiah. And there would have been one name as they studied the scriptures that stood out to them. The name of Cyrus that we can read about in Isaiah 45. This book, Isaiah, written 150 years before the exile takes place. It predicts that the exile is going to happen and then mentions by name this man, Cyrus, that he is going to emerge and he will be God's chosen instrument to release the Israelite people that they will only get free when this person, Cyrus, emerges. And it didn't get me thinking as to whether, you know, if a couple, when they were in captivity, had a baby, they thought, you thinking what I'm thinking? <laughs> Should we get the ball rolling a little bit? Cyrus is starting to sound like a good name. Is that how it works? Is that pushing the issue? But imagine when you were in captivity, waiting for God to move, waiting for some glimmer of freedom that you hear. There is some distant empire and an heir to the throne has just been born and his name is Cyrus. And then imagine as you wait, you then learn, oh, he's now, he's grown up, the old king is gone. He is now the ruler of this distant nation. And now, not only is he the ruler, but he's starting to accumulate a bit of power. He's starting to actually look like he might be the real deal. And this empire that he rules looks like it might be the real deal. And then you learn that this place in which you are in exile, in Babylon, is at war again. And the army that's coming against you is led by this Cyrus. And he has a mighty army. And then you hear, and of course experience because you're living there, that Babylon has been overcome by this nation, that you are now under a new ruler, and that ruler's name is Cyrus. And then, as was promised, soon after, he's in power, and he says, every exile within Babylon can go, can go home to their, their home nation, just as God had said. Just imagine what that does for your sense of the sovereign power of God in your life and his care for his people. That 150 years before the exile even happened, 150 years. So this is before Cyrus's grandparents were even born. God names him by name as the one who will come to power and be the one who releases you. You get to see it unfold all before your eyes. Now, 20 years on, as God speaks here, what he is basically saying is, remember. Remember what I can do. Remember how I have acted. Remember how I will then continue to act because this is who I am. When the world seemed to you so fragile, you felt so vulnerable, all seemed to be unraveling, I was in control. This is why we go back to stories like this, to remember, to remember that their God is our God, that this is our story, 
that he had everything in his hands then, and so he has everything in his hands now. He made a way then, and so he will make a way now. It may be that you've got stories from your own life of times where you felt unsettled or uncertain and everything seemed to be unraveling and then you saw God show up in a way that revealed his sovereign power and his sovereign way of working and care for you. If you do, great. Remember those, hold on to those. But if you don't, this is our story. Regardless of whether you do, this is our story. This is our God, the one who draws near, speaks through his words twice in one day wanting us to know he is in control. We are safe in his hands. We can entrust ourselves fully to him. And as we trust him, he will take us in his hands and carry us towards the promises that he makes. Verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. From the expanse of the whole heavens and earth in God's hand, at the end of this book, we have a moment where all of that falls away, quite suddenly. And we are left with just one man, that God takes just one man in his hands. And he speaks directly to this man, Zerubbabel. And he says, I am going to make you my signet ring. Now, there is a depth of meaning here for us to uncover. But even before we delve too deep, I think we kind of know this sounds good. He's referring to him as jewelry. He's calling him precious and valuable and earlier in Scripture, we read of, uh, in, in Ezekiel, we read of Ezekiel mentioning a signet ring, and he compares this signet ring to perfection. He says, every precious stone was its covering. Sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle. He is saying to, to Zerubbabel, I am going to make you shine with beauty. I'm going to give you multifaceted glory and wonder as my signet ring. You are going to glimmer and shimmer and sparkle with the perfect glory of God. You are going to be beautiful, Zerubbabel, in my sight. But the value of of a ring, I think, goes far beyond just its beauty. This is my wedding ring right here. The wedding ring that Hannah gave to me, 10 years in July, that we will be married. And this wedding ring that I have is easily the single most precious thing that I have. And if you were to ask me, oh, Duncan, why is it so precious? I'd say, very good question. Serves my illustration perfectly. Thank you very much. Why is it so precious to me? Is it because it costs a lot of money? Is it because I think it is beautiful and wonderful? And it is kind of. It certainly wasn't cheap, and I do think it looks good, but that is also not really the reason why it's so precious to me. Because if you were to offer me three more of these rings, or ten more of these rings that were absolutely identical and newer, and so then objectively better in the sense of it's more valuable and more beautiful because it doesn't have ten years of scratches all over it, would I take it as a swap? Absolutely no way. Why? 
because it's mine. This is the ring that Hannah gave to me to symbolize our love and, to our, and our union, and I wear it to represent that. The ring is personal to me and to us. And also, I guess on a slightly deeper level, it's kind of part of me. A ring is, a, often with, with rings, I don't know if, about you, but certainly for me, I very rarely take it off. And it's on my hands. And so when I'm gesticulating wildly, I see it all the time. I'm very aware of it. And it's on my skin, and so it's kind of connected to my body. And so if I've ever not got it on, it feels weird, and I feel strange, and I feel incomplete without it. A ring is something particularly unique in its preciousness. Precious because of its beauty, yes, but because it's personal. And to some extent, it is part of who we are. And this certainly was the case with a signet ring. This is a royal ring that would have been worn by a king, crafted personally for him, given his unique seal so that he can sign off documents and authorize things and do whatever kings would do. This is his ring, deeply personal to him, deeply precious to him as the king, intimately connected to who he was, his very identity. Without it, he would be an incomplete king, unable to act as king. And this is what God, the king, says to Zerubbabel, and by extension to his people, come and be my signet ring. Come and be beautiful, yes, but don't just come and be beautiful and, and sparkle, but come and be my beauty. Come and be my delight. Come and be so intimately connected to me that you become part of me in the deepest way. And remember, this is the second time that God has spoken in this one day. And if you were here last week, you might remember what it was that God spoke to them before. On this same day, he had spoken to them to help them see who it is that they really are before him. That although they have made some really good progress as a people building this temple and what they have been doing is good, what God has wanted to say to them is, before me, you are an impure, unholy, unclean people. You are not beautiful, is what he said earlier in this day. And now here, on this very same day, he speaks again. And he doesn't say to them, you are an unclean people, so go away from me. Here he says, you are an unclean people, so come. You are unclean and unbeautiful, so come and be close to me. Let me make you an unholy and unclean people my signet ring. Let me make you clean and beautiful and let me make you sparkle. Let me make you mine as I draw you fully into who I am and make you a part of me. When we know that we have done wrong before God, one of the most common responses or reactions that we have is, I have messed up. So this means I cannot come to God. This is prevalent. We all, have, think, we all think of this in some way. We think I have sinned, and so this means that I shouldn't go to church this week and be with his people. I have fallen short, so of course God doesn't want to hear me pray. It appears to be very, very sound logic, but it is not God's logic. 
God never says to us, you are unclean, so you cannot have me. The words of God to us are always, you are unclean, so look how much you need me. Let me clean you. In this book where one of the primary themes, as we've seen, is God's movement towards his people. That he wants to be with his people. He wants to dwell in their midst. He wants us to have connection and relationship with him. This moment of intimacy is, I think, the climactic moment of that. That this God, with all of his sovereign might, of all of his, his power, this God of the universe, he wants, wants to reach down to his people, pick us up, and put us on to make an unclean people his beauty, to join us to him in a way where we become part of him. And you might think, but why then, of all of these people, does he pick Zerubbabel particularly for this? This is the, dr the dramatic close of the book. The spotlight is very much well and truly on this man that as this was read out to the people, this name Zerubbabel and the events that happen here would be ringing in their ears, the thing that they're left with. And Zerubbabel, he has appeared a few times in the book. We've heard his name. We haven't really seen him do much or heard much about him. We know very little of him. We read in verse 21, as we've heard before, that he's the governor of Judah. Sounds a very impressive title, but actually, to be honest, it didn't really mean much. It was a title given by the Persians to him didn't have much authority or power. But here, in verse 23, we read that he is the son of Shealtiel, which means a great deal more. That when God's people heard that he is the son of Shealtiel, they would have realized this is not just any Zerubbabel. This is Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and also grandson of Jehoiachin, King Jehoiachin one of the last kings that was ruling over Jerusalem before they were overthrown and before they were taken off into exile. Zerubbabel was in line to take that throne before the throne fell to the ground. They were taken away as a people and in the exile it looked like all of the promises of God were coming to an end. That covenant that God had made, that the royal bloodline would flow from David forever and ever and ever. King David would endure forever. His throne would never ever come to an end. That promise looks dead in the ground. Even it prophesies in the book of Jeremiah that it looks like this promise has come to an end. I've realized I can't use this bookmark thing when it's on a stand. Hang on a tick. Some people nearly came rushing then. They panicked. Don't let the Bible fall to the floor. Listen to what God says in Jeremiah chapter 22. Speaking of King Jehoi Jehoiachin. These names get confused in my head. The grandfather. So speaking of the grandfather here of King Zerubbabel. He's also known as King Coniah here. This same king. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of where? Babylon, and into the hand of 
the Chaldeans. Almost exactly 80 years before the events of Haggai, before this prophetic word to Zerubbabel that we've been looking at, the signet ring had been cast off by God. This was a divine rejection of God, of his king. A divine rejection of a disobedient, hard-hearted people who had turned from him and were faithless. A divine distancing from the promises that his throne would endure forever and ever. Until this moment that we've been looking at, where the signet ring is picked back up, dusted off, and in Zerubbabel, the direct descendant of this kingly line, the one who within him is in the inheritor of this dormant promise, is put back on by God. This is a beautiful moment. We can get lost in the weeds of the names. But he is saying yes once again to his people and his promises. To all these people who thought, because we have sinned, because we have messed, we are going to miss out on everything of God. We're going to lose out on the promises. We are going to miss out on the blessing that God might have of us because of our past behavior and all that we have done. As God puts his signet ring back on, he says, no, you are right back in. The exile is now well and truly over. He is picking up his promises to his people again and saying, I am going to accomplish everything, everything that I said I would. And as word got round that God had said this and God was doing this, I wonder if they then started to think, maybe the good old days are coming back. Maybe it's going to be like it was before. We might turn the pages of our Bible and think, surely then we're going to expect to see this temple in its renewed splendor and its new, its new glory. The palace of God's king in Jerusalem is going to be restored. Surely we're going to see King Zerubbabel himself commanding great armies, maybe even greater than David and triumphant on the battlefield. But as we turn the pages of Scripture, this chosen one, this signet ring of God, falls away into complete obscurity. There is no king enthroned in Jerusalem. It seems again as though the promises of God are failing once more. And as time goes on, Zerubbabel's name, he's only mentioned in passing. We see him in Matthew chapter 1. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconia was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, as we know, was the father of Zerubbabel. And that's it. That's how we find him. He appears as just one name in a list of names. But it's not just any list of names. It's a list that is leading somewhere. This is the royal bloodline, the descendants of David, tracing from him, culminating just a few verses later as you read through the list of names. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. This promise that we read at the end of Haggai of a kingdom restored, it is set in motion by the choosing of the signet ring Zerubbabel, but it is fulfilled in the greater and truer signet ring that is to come. Jesus Christ, the one who is true, beauty and splendor, multifaceted wonder and glory, the most treasured and precious possession of the Lord God Almighty, truly part of him that he has sent out to shake the heavens and the earth, 
to show that he is always faithful to the promises that he makes. In Jesus, this promise is fulfilled. Jerusalem receives her king again. But this time the king doesn't come as he came before. Display of victory and of might as the king enters in, but this king comes humble, riding on a donkey. And this time the coronation of the king, it's not found in the seat of, seated on a throne, arrayed in splendor and glory. The enthronement and coronation of this king is found lifted high, stripped naked, hung on a cross. This is the king of glory. This is him reigning in power. It just looks very, very different to what they might have expected. And as we finish Haggai, we rest in this same promise of a sovereign, all-powerful God, the God of the hailstones, the God of the nations, the one who is at work in our day. He is showing himself to be completely faithful to all of his promises. And while we might also dream of the good old days or the days of big things coming, that churches all across Manchester that are filled every single th Sunday with thousands and thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people coming to faith and a society transformed by the way of Jesus, they are good things to hope for. They're good things to pray for. But primarily what we're seeing in our day is we are seeing a reordering of the world. We are seeing his reign and his glory in power. It just looks not quite like we would expect. Today, like in these days of Haggai, he is fulfilling his promises through small things, through remnants, through people that look very much like this. Church congregations of just 100 people, but 100 faithful people. A hundred people that, despite the fact that we are dwarfed by the major city that we live in, we look to him, we devote ourselves to him, and we are confident that as we do, he will carry us sovereignly through to accomplish all of his plans in this world and into the next.